KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, April 2nd. Overly long stays at the San Diego County Jails. We'll have more on that next, just after the headlines. San Diego County public health officials reported 252 new COVID-19 infections on Thursday and no new deaths. Hospitalizations from the virus were down. That as COVID-19 vaccine eligibility expanded to people 50 and older. So far, about 35 percent of San Diegans have had at least one dose of vaccine and about 21 percent of San Diegans are fully vaccinated. The state's goal is to vaccinate 75 percent of the population to achieve herd immunity. San Diego County tax officials say you have just 11 days left to pay the second installment of your 2020-2021 property taxes before there's a 10% penalty and a $10 fee added. They say their offices are still closed to the public, but that you can go online at sdttc.com to make a payment. Online payments will be accepted up until midnight on April 12th. Opening day for the Padres was last night. The home team won their first game of the season, 8-7, against the Arizona Diamondbacks. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. County jails are supposed to be places where people arrested and charged with crimes are held for a brief time while they make bail and await their day in court. But KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser says in San Diego County, at least 380 people have spent more than a year in county jails. And I I was scared that he was going to die in George Bailey. Gina Burns is talking about her son, Bernard, who's been in jail waiting for his trial to finish for almost three years. Because you keep telling them that he needs help, this and that, and they just ignore it. They ignore it. He's one of at least 380 people who have spent more than a year in San Diego jails, according to records obtained by the news organization CalMatters. They're either waiting for their trials to begin or waiting for additional hearings or sentencing. But unlike the majority of defendants, they're doing that waiting not from home, but in jail. The records show that three people have been in San Diego jails for more than five years. 20 people have been in jail for more than three years. These pretrial detentions can be absolutely devastating. Michael Samanchik is the managing attorney for the California Innocence Project. When you have sentenced somebody to prison in the past, there would be a yard and there's uh, educational opportunities and there's jobs and there's 
you know, it's all kind of set up for longer term living and the jails are just not set up for that where there's not, they're typically in downtown urban centers where there's not a big, vast open area. Uh, they're not t- typically set up to uh, keep uh, the, the person uh, working on their job skills. There's not educational uh, aspects built into the, the jail program. So uh, thinking about keeping people in pretrial detention for these longer periods of time, it, it's not really meant for that purpose. And so you're really just kind of sitting around, not able to do anything. And it's super detrimental. In California, defendants have the right to a trial that begins within 60 days for a felony, 30 days for a misdemeanor. But according to the CalMatters report, there are several reasons why people might wait in jail for much longer. Defense attorneys waive their client's right to a speedy trial to get extra time to prepare. Or stacked court schedules lead to delays. All of this has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Emergency orders allow judges to delay trial dates, and jury trials cannot be done virtually. Rachel Solov is a chief deputy district attorney for San Diego. We had a period of time where the court was shut down completely um, for trials. And um, since the end of last year, we've been back doing trials, but it's slow going because um, we don't have as many courtrooms to do trials in as we did pre-COVID because the COVID courtrooms is what we call them had to be retrofitted with safety features so that it was safe to actually do a trial in those courtrooms. But the trial backlog could continue long into the future. And that was KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Many of California's 1,200 nursing homes morphed into COVID-19 death traps over the last year. KPBS's Amitha Sharma says the alarming death rate has prompted a slew of state bills aimed at making the homes safer and their owners more accountable. One in four COVID-19 deaths in California were in nursing homes. Advocates say the blame rests on chronic understaffing, poor infection control, weak oversight, and opaque ownership that puts profits over people. Now, lawmakers have released a package of bills that, among other things, would stiffen penalties for nursing home misconduct, expand liability for patient rights violations, and mandate that owners be financially transparent. This, to me, is our one shot at going big, of doing something comprehensive and sufficiently aggressive. We're going to try to make things right. State Senator Henry Stern expects the nursing home industry to lobby hard against the reform strategy. Assemblyman Reginald Jones-Sawyer says it's a fraught strategy. I don't think the nursing home or the nursing facilities want to be in a position where they have to say that they don't want to provide better quality of care for their patients. And so I am better warned. I've been battle tested. I'm ready for the fight. A statewide nursing home lobbying group declined comment. And that was KPBS's Amitha Sharma. Ahead of Easter Sunday, a program to bring COVID-19 testing to black churches is launching in San Diego. KPBS reporter Melissa May says it's a statewide call to action with a mission of saving lives. So this is your test. Okay. You gonna open it up? New COVID testing sites are coming to black churches across San Diego County, thanks to a partnership between the County Health Department, the Tabernacle Community Development Corporation, and the African American Community Empowerment Council. 
Reverend Judy Wortham is Tabernacle Development's Southern California director for the COVID-19 testing program. She says the black community may be nervous to get tested, but these walk-up testing sites welcome all. No need to make an appointment. No need to have health insurance. No need to be afraid to get tested at the one place trusted by African Americans, our black churches. Church leaders say black churches are well positioned to inform the community about the importance of COVID-19 testing and to provide a known safe space for accessing testing. First dose or second dose? Bishop William A. Benson of the Total Deliverance Worship Center is grateful the church is seen as a valuable partner in fighting against COVID-19. We have joined with such a marvelous group of professional individuals who are teaching us to rid the, uh, the paranoias of fear of doctors and procedures. Community-based testing remains a core strategy to reducing virus transmission and mortality. We want to be healthy. We want our families to be healthy. We want our community to be healthy. And we definitely want our parishioners to be healthy. Three new sites will open starting today at the Total Deliverance Worship Center, Bethel AME Church, and the Bayview Baptist Church. The program goal is to test 150 individuals daily at each location through June 31st. And that was KPBS's Melissa May. Everyone 50 and older are now eligible to get a COVID-19 vaccine. But being eligible is just the first step on the road to getting vaccinated. Next up is scheduling an appointment. That process alone is riddled with technological challenges and not enough appointments to meet the need. Dr. Bob Gillespie is a sharp physician and the medical director of the San Diego Black Nurses Association. The group is finding a way to make it easier for African-Americans to be vaccinated. Dr. Gillespie spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. So first, tell me how you and the San Diego Black Nurses Association are involved in the vaccination effort. One of the things that we figured out early on, if you leave it to the grid, that is, if it's the Internet that guides therapy or intervention for vaccines for African-Americans in high-risk populations, it's much less likely to get done. And in fact, if you go into some of the areas that are on the grid in Southeast San San Diego and other places, you won't see the demographic that you would expect to see at those sites getting vaccinations. And there's a number of reasons for that. Internet access, savvy with the internet, hesitancy. So what we figured out, and specifically San Diego Black Nurses figured out, is that we really had to take it off the grid and to go to local churches and local community centers and have a targeted approach to vaccinating those at high risk. That allowed us to not only go and get a, a dedicated population to the point where we we're able to vaccinate 97% or greater of the targeted population in those areas, but we also were given the opportunity to deal with any hesitancy issues that might come up that would prevent others from getting vaccinated. In many cases, we're able to convince those who come with the primary vaccinating person convince them to get a vaccination also or to schedule one for a later date. And tell me more about the success you've had with doing these uh, these clinics. I mean, in, do you have a sense of how many people you've, you've been able to get vaccinated? Yes, we do. In fact, if you look at the total events that we've done through San Diego Black Nurses, as well as we have partnered with other groups, it's been over 2,000 people who have been vaccinated. And this has moved the needle, we believe, from a number that roughly 
if you looked at the statistics earlier in the month, if you looked at African-Americans who had been vaccinated, it's been between 2 and 2.1% of the total population vaccinated. That's moved up to around 2.6% in about a month. And we make up the population in San Diego about 5.1%. So still very much under vaccinated compared to the population. But we've clearly made a dent. We think part of the dent is what we've done, as well as a number of other community organizations with the same mindset. And as you mentioned, while there's been a lot of success, the vaccination rate in the Black community is still lower than all of the other ethnic groups in the county. Talk to me more about the reasons for that. Well, there's multiple reasons. And I, I think some... We certainly know about the history in this country in terms of interaction with the medical system and concerns that many African-Americans have about that history and mistrust. That certainly is a component to what's going on. But I don't want to underestimate the importance of also just having events that are in our communities. Certainly, if you look at flu vaccines or any other type of vaccine or delivered process, it usually goes better when it's delivered by African-Americans to African-Americans. And and the reason for that, if you look at the data, the most trusted messengers in our communities are black nurses and black doctors. And that's just from a history of what we've dealt with for so many years. But I think the other point is access is major. You've already pointed out earlier, for everyone, it's extremely difficult. But for some populations, it's even more difficult and and some are less willing to jump through the hoops necessary to make that happen, particularly when there's a hesitancy component already present. And the vaccine superstations, such as the one at the Del Mar Fairgrounds, they've closed multiple times due to vaccine shortages. Has that been an issue you've dealt with? Well, one of the things that when we first started doing our vaccinations in the churches and the community centers, we had the same problem. And what would happen is we may line up 400 people and could only do 200 or we'd have to back off on the numbers we wanted to vaccinate because our goal is a minimum of 500 per week with our with our centers that we're doing this. We've been fortunate as time has gone on, one, because we I think because of the disparity, we know the importance of affecting this population and it's become easier in some ways for us to get vaccine, one, because we're able to make a difference in that community group. And you know there's this equity index where you're really trying to affect those who have the least vaccinated in the population. So I think the county has certainly worked with us more. And I think also as we have more vaccines become available, it's going to even be easier for us now that we have the J&J vaccine in addition to the Moderna and the Pfizer. So the answer to your question has gotten easier, but initially it was quite difficult. Well, now that those 50 and older are eligible, do you anticipate vaccine shortages to still be an issue? I do believe there will be a short-term issue, but as our government and local agencies try to ramp up production, it will be less of an issue. But nonetheless, in the short term, people are still having difficulty getting appointments. And I think this is particularly important that we do more of these community-targeted events, because I want you to remember that African-Americans who die, about 25% of those are under 65. So targeting younger people and African-American populations is particularly important because of multiple risk factors and all the other living conditions that increase risk. The same goes for the Hispanic or Latinx community. So the answer to your question, I think long-term, the vaccine uh, numbers will continue to rise, but short-term, we will continue to have challenges. But because of the importance of targeting and trying to decrease equity, I'm hoping the county will continue to work with us 
to get the highest risk populations vaccinated. And since we know that there will still be challenges, uh, will the Black Nurses Association strategy change now that more people are eligible? The strategy will be the same. You go into communities, you find those folks that can go out to our community health workers. You know, we have a campaign with multicultural and other groups, Susan Aflalo and other doctors who go out and we find the high risk patients in, in that community. In fact, that still will go on. The real issue will be how much vaccine we can get. We will have to wait and see. I'm hopeful because we are looking at, again, a high risk group relative to the average that we will still, because of the risk involved, be able to get enough vaccinations to deal with the patients that we're trying to vaccinate. That's yet to be seen, but I'm hopeful. Dr. Bob Gillespie is a sharp physician and the medical director of the San Diego Black Nurses Association. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Coming up, this is going to be part of our operations, our lens, and how we look at things is through the environmental justice lens. The Port of San Diego is changing up how it does business. That's next, along with our weekend preview, just after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. public agency that manages the tidelands around San Diego Bay is considering adjusting the way it does business. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the Port of San Diego's new master plan, a planning document for the next three decades, could include a focus on environmental justice. When trucks rumble through bayside San Diego neighborhoods, some see economic vitality but the economic payload comes with a cost, a cost that's frequently paid by neighborhoods like Barrio Logan. Barrio Logan is in the top 5% of the most polluted uh, areas by diesel pollution in the state of California. Diane Tekvorian works with the Environmental Health Coalition. For 30 years, she's pushed Barrio Logan residents to lobby the Port of San Diego to clean up its operations. Tekvorian says pollution there pushes local asthma rates up, and that's not the only health impact. We have the, some of the highest rates of uh, COVID uh, infections and mortality in Barrio Logan, National City, and other parts of the South Bay. So this is serious. People's lives depend on it. Local residents forced the port to listen as commissioners debated a concrete contract with Mitsubishi late last year. The neighborhood cried out about too much truck traffic linked to the project, and the port shelled the idea for now. 
there's been a gradual transition towards collaboration. The port's Jason Giffen says the agency is considering doing something that's rare. They're looking at being one of the first ports in California to add an environmental justice element to their master planning document. Giffen says that'll help Bayside communities. They're more than their fair share of impacts. We look at this as an opportunity and we look at it as a way to guide the future together to reduce impacts specifically around some of the neighboring communities around the port. The change would force the port to do more than just consider economic, recreational, or public access issues when they consider projects or leases in the Tidelands. The agency would have to consider how policies or projects impact nearby neighborhoods. We're at a point, an inflection point, where we can really set the balance for the next 30 years and really focus on improving air quality, environmental quality. And recently, we've really seen an investment by the port and an acceleration into advancing clean water and clean air programs at activities at our marine terminals and also in the working waterfront. The port is already moving to electrify vehicles at marine terminals, and there are efforts to move truck traffic around residential neighborhoods. There's also a push to increase access to transit. But the Environmental Health Coalition's longtime leader eyes the move with some skepticism. It's, it's a good sentiment, and it's an important goal. But what's really important is that they actually um, materialize that in the actions that they take. The push to keep environmental justice from being just a paper change has allies on the board of port commissioners. Board Chair Michael Zuchett says the port wants healthy, thriving neighbors. He says clean air is important to him, and he thinks electrification of port vehicles is an important strategy. Those who lead on this issue will get the funding, the grant funding, the support that needs to make these transitions. And I want to make sure the port's on the front side of that. And the Board of Port Commissioners' newest member, Sandy Naranjo from National City, wants to build on progress that is already happening. The port is shifting. And and I want to be, as my role as port commissioner, I want to push for that so we can be leading, not just in our region, but in our state and nationally. Naranjo brings a history of community activism to the job. And she's excited that the port's master planning document will have that environmental justice element. This is going to be part of our operations, our lens, and how we look at things is through the environmental justice lens. Recovering from the financial hit from the COVID-19 pandemic will grab a lot of attention at the port this year. But the agency could also keep Bayside neighbors in the discussion if environmental justice becomes part of the business equation. And that was KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. If you're looking to indulge in some arts and culture this weekend, KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans has these three picks for our weekend preview. First up is some walk-by visual art. Locally-based artist Flavia Derso is currently wrapping up her residency at Art Produce in North Park, and there's still a few more days to see it. Her work is called I Will Not Carry You, and she uses vessel-like forms. They kind of look like vases or jugs, and it's all to make a statement about the queer female body, about oppressive gender-based ideals, and reproduction myths. These are beautiful works. They're fractured, shell-like pieces. 
Some seem to transform into feathery, wispy textiles. And there's a bunch of the sculptures strewn about the space, which is visible from University Avenue. You can also make an appointment to tour it individually. Durso herself will be in studio Friday afternoon from 3 to 6 and Saturday from 2 to 6, which is the last day of her residency. Speaking of oppressive gender-based ideals, the Domestic Geographies exhibition at the front has a film program called Home, That Obscure Object of Desire. It's a free online film program, a collection of six feminist films from the last 50 years, ranging from a full-length documentary that follows five survivors of domestic violence to films like Love, which is a short work that puts together what seems like hundreds of quick clips from other movies from points in a romantic relationship. So whether it be a kiss, an argument, revenge, horror, anything. And one that I couldn't look away from is the performance artist Martha Rosler's 1975 film Semiotics of the Kitchen, which clocks in at about six minutes. Rosler picks up individual kitchen objects in alphabetical order and names them. Greater. Hamburger press. Ice pick. The films in the Domestic Geographies film series are viewable on demand online Friday through April 11th. All the films are free. And finally, Carrie Feller, who is the front person to Darkwave Band's Hexa and Ours, and who has also started putting out her own solo work, she has a dose of goth to add to the piano concert world. The Athenaeum Art Center's Logan Lone Piano Concerts have been featuring local musicians, mostly jazz and classical piano players, in these stripped-down sets with just a piano in the empty art space. Carrie Feller's concert, just 10 minutes long, includes two original compositions, and they're mesmerizingly good. The first is Prelude in Terror, and it's dark and meditative. Here's a listen. Carrie Feller's Logan Lone Piano Concert is viewable online now on the Athenaeum Art Center's YouTube channel. For more arts events or to sign up for my weekly KPBS Arts newsletter, go to kpbs.org arts. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. 
Thanks for listening, and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.